When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. MasterCard presents a CEO success story. Meet Kai Frazier. She had an idea. Kai founded Kai XR, a VR platform for kids. CEO supported Kai's idea, and now she's able to help kids around the world learn new in-demand tech skills. MasterCard is helping CEO find women-identifying entrepreneurs who are working on the world's to-do list. Come see how you can help her idea start something priceless at CEO.world. Her ideas start something priceless. If you've looked at the news recently, there's a decent chance you saw images of a lobster pound in Nova Scotia that burned down this weekend, or heard about a Mi'kmaq fisherman there who had to barricade himself against an angry mob that torched his van and demanded the return of his lobster catch. It's no exaggeration to say southern Nova Scotia has erupted in recent weeks as some commercial lobster fishermen turned to violence to protest indigenous lobster harvests and what I think might be called the idea of a treaty-based fishery, that is, a fishery operating outside commercial regulations. I'm Gabe Friedman, host of Down to Business, and this week I spoke to Megan Bailey, associate professor at Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia. She's the Canada Research Chair in Integrated Ocean and Coastal Governance, and she knows all about the lobster dispute. One of the first things that Bailey and others told me is that despite the mayhem, the lobster business has actually never been better. The stocks are in good health and prices are high. And what's more, scientists said the indigenous harvest being protested is actually statistically insignificant, maybe about 500 traps out of an estimated 900,000 total. But the Nova Scotia lobster business is unique. It's not dominated by corporations and individuals own licenses and their own boats. Now angry mobs are coming out because indigenous lobster fishers on St. Mary's Bay started exercising their right to harvest lobster for a quote, moderate livelihood. That phrase comes from a court ruling that looked at the rights enshrined in some of the treaties signed in Canada more than 200 years ago. Bailey suggested Canada is overdue for a reckoning about what those treaties meant. She didn't have easy answers for the recent lawless behavior, but said racism and economic fear both play a strong role. On a more positive note, the mayhem isn't the whole story, and Bailey noted other indigenous communities are operating treaty-based fisheries without fear of persecution, which means there could still be a better ending to this sad affair. Hi, Megan Bailey. Thanks so much for joining me on Down to Business. Yeah, thanks for having me. I was wondering if it's possible for you to sort of summarize or sketch out what's happening here in Nova Scotia, what the conflict is about. Yeah, so about a month ago, one of our First Nations communities here in Nova Scotia, Sabaganagadi, uh, launched their moderate livelihood fishery in an area in southwest Nova Scotia called St. Mary's Bay. Um, and kind of over the last month, there's been various protests around that launch. 
This is a, a treaty fishery. It's recognized as a treaty right and reaffirmed in the Constitution and upheld in the Supreme Court. So the protests have been largely uh, kind of voiced around conservation concerns, but there's there's really no science to support the idea that we need to be worried about lobster stocks in the area. And yeah, protests have kind of turned particularly violent over the last week. So I just want to go back. I think you said this is a, a moderate livelihood fishery that was launched about a, a month ago, I think in September. Can you tell me a little bit what that means, if you can? Yeah, I mean, I think I can tell you we don't really know what that means. But um, so basically, there's a recognized right for Mi'kmaq to earn this so-called moderate livelihood from the fishery. In this case, we're talking uh -huh. specifically about lobster. Um, but that hasn't really been defined. So, And this is recognized in a court decision like years and years ago. Yeah, 21 years ago. Yeah. So in 1999, Donald Marshall Jr. was basically acquitted in the Supreme Court. His right to earn a moderate livelihood from the, the catching and selling of eels was recognized. He had been charged. Um, and the Supreme Court said that all Mi'kmaq have this right to a livelihood. So to be able to catch, you know, that's part of the right. And then to be able to sell in order to make uh, to make a livelihood. But so that was recognized in 99, but it's not new. I mean, it was it was part of, of a treaty um, kind of process hundreds of years ago. And it also uh, is reaffirmed in our constitution in section, I believe, 35. So the First Nations have a right to earn a moderate living. For people thinking about this, it's different from sort of harvesting for your own food, which is also recognized as I understand it. And it's different from sort of commercial fishery, possibly, where, you know, you're out to harvest as much lobster as you can and ultimately sell it and maximize your profit. But you just said in terms of the actual environmental impact, you don't, you don't think there is an issue. What makes you say that? So the reason that we, you know, we don't think there's a conserv conservation concern linked with um, lobster fisheries generally is that so lobster is doing better now than it ever has been. It's kind of one of those the only fisheries that um, we have more lobster today than we, you know we did decades ago. So lobster fishing has quite a history here, but it used to be more for even fertilizer. Actually, lobsters were were used, crushed down and sold for fertilizer. So now you know it's a very high value live product. We export a lot of it. And it's very lucrative and it's very economically profitable for communities and for the province as a whole. But yeah, w there's no conservation concern whatsoever. So there's a stock assessment done for lobsters every five years and there's nothing to, to tell us that we need to be worried. So that's kind of generally across, you know, the, the whole population of lobster. I see. The specific concerns that the, the fish harvesting sector is bringing up now is related specifically to St. Mary's Bay and a drop in, in catches that they have seen over the past couple of years. So the Department of Fisheries and Oceans released kind of catch and effort data for St. Mary's Bay. And um, yes, catches have gone down, but they're within kind of normal variation. They go up and down all the time. So for that reason, we don't look at this and say, you know, we're in any kind of conservation concern state. I've heard it's about 500 traps in the context of there are 900,000 traps in all of Canada, in the Atlantic. So a very small number like that way. But what about people say it's off season that, that, the, that the lobsters, you know, are more fragile at this time, their shells are softer, they're not, you know, when it gets cold, the shells harden up. And so you can actually more easily hurt the lobsters. Yeah, right. I mean, I think there are there are two issues here. So one is certainly the scale of the fishery is quite small currently. Um, as you say, the livelihood fishery is fishing, you know, about 50 traps per boat. And I think they originally started with about five licenses. They've moved to seven licenses and, and maybe upwards of 10 licenses. 
but that's extremely small scale compared to, as you say, the commercial sector, which has uh, almost a thousand licenses in that area, and they fish 350 traps per license. So the scale of the fishery, not a concern at this scale. But also, yeah, this, this issue of the summer fishery has come up quite a lot over the past month. In the summer, lobsters are molting in, in warmer water, and so they basically... Uh, are soft-shelled. And when you bring them up on the boat and you catch them, they can be a little bit more prone to mortality uh, associated with like how you handle them. So this is, of course, if you're going to uh, keep the lobster, then they're going to die anyway. But the idea here is that if you're picking up a lobster, and for example, if she's a female lobster that's carrying eggs on her, you have to put her back in the water. And so there's, you know, a real kind of concern that if you're throwing a bunch of those lobsters back, some of them won't survive. But again, the scale is really small and we have summer fisheries elsewhere. So in Maine, they fish all year round and they have a summer fishery. So it's, I think it's just important, these two points. Number one, it's not unsustainable <laughs> to fish in the summer. That's not inherently an unsustainable thing to do. And the scale is very small. Yeah. This is, to me, sort of part of what's, what's sort of makes this situation difficult to understand because usually I think about violence and protests erupting when things are bad. But here, it sounds like the fishery is basically in good shape. Is there anything that can account for the level of violence that we're seeing and the mayhem we're seeing? I mean, I don't, you know, I don't think that there's any excuse for that, for the violence and, you know, racism that is playing out in Southwest yeah. Nova Scotia. I do think that it's wrapped up in much larger kind of an environment of fear for the commercial sector. And that's, yeah, I mean, so lobster fisheries are doing great. They're worth a lot. And, the, but there's also a lot of money invested in them, right? And so right. it's extremely expensive to buy a license, obviously your boat maintenance, your gear, et cetera. So even though these are lucrative fisheries, they're overcapitalized. Um, and so there is, of course, a worry that if these fisheries cannot continue in their current state, a lot of people will lose a lot of money. So that that I think that's a fair fear, but I don't think it's a it's a fear based on any scientific rationale that we're leading into a state of not being able to catch lobsters, right? Yeah. And again, I mean, you mentioned that this is sort of based on fear that a lot of people have money invested. I mean, we all know that the Atlantic provinces have been hit really hard with overharvesting of, of cod in the past, that in general, the economy isn't doing that well. You, you mentioned that there's a lot of capital invested into lobsters. Where is this capital coming from? Is it just people from other fisheries now pivoting to lobster or is it outside money coming in? Do, do you have any sense of that? Mm, you know, I don't have a good sense of that. And um, I think that's a great question. But I, I do think that in some ways, it's it ends up being kind of individual debt as well, right? So our the way our lobster fisheries operate here is, at least the inshore sector, is this idea of owner-operator, uh, which is protected under new amendments in the Fisheries Act. So if you're going to own a lobster license, you have to fish it. Yeah, you can't lease that, that kind of opportunity out to somebody else, um, which yeah. also means that like a processing plant can't own lobster licenses, um, etc. So this is really a, very much about an individual who owns a license and the privilege to fish under that license. So I'm sure that there are absolutely, you know, other things that happen in terms of financing this fishery. But generally speaking, it is about an individual um, and financing an individual's opportunity to contribute and participate in the fishery. It's it's not a or it's not supposed to be a highly corporatized sector in that way, like other fisheries are. Yeah, that's one of the things I was wondering too. I I have heard of a lobster license. But the people have said that it can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars and the price has been rising, maybe even a million dollars. It just made me wonder, this is a long question, but I guess when, when we talk about fear, I mean, 
just in general, I feel like there is a fear these days about the environment. And when you read the reports of the protesters, a lot of them say they're worried about conservation. I guess I'm wondering, is there a legitimate fear there, something about climate change? Or are some of these protesters, do you think, cloaking their fears and some racism in concerns about the environment and conservation? You know, I think actually both of those things are true. So I, so I think there's both the cloaking and there is, there's a lot of, there's certainly racism and also just misunderstanding. So I, I don't think people really recognize that there are a different set of rules for Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, right? And, and some people actually don't understand that and they don't accept that. And so, so I think there's that kind of misunderstanding is there. And what do you mean by that? Like that there's a different set of rules? So if you're a commercial fisherman operating on a commercial license, you have to abide by license regulations, right? And that comes with things like when your season opens and when your season closes, traps that you can have, this kind of thing. And these regulations are set out by the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. If you're operating a treaty fishery, so for food, social, ceremonial, or moderate livelihood fishery, you are not subject to those commercial fisheries regulations. This is a fishery operating outside of the commercial regulation. That doesn't mean it's an unregulated fishery. And that's an extremely important point, right? So, so First Nations have governance and regulation for their fisheries, but it's not the commercial regulations that we're used to. And so a p- part of it is this misunderstanding, which is this idea that the, the kind of the non-Indigenous commercial sector seems to think that if there's a fishery operating outside of commercial regulations, that it's unregulated. And so there's a fear in this like lawlessness of an Indigenous fishery operating. But that's just fundamentally not true. There are regulations and there are governance mechanisms in place, but they're just based on Mi'kmaq governance, not on Department of Fisheries and Oceans management. I see. Do you know what, like, which treaties granted Indigenous rights in Nova Scotia or what the historical context was of why we signed this treaty? So we signed multiple treaties. Um, this was we being the British crown at the time um, and the, the, Mi'kmaq, the Mi'kmaq nation, as well as, um, I, I believe, two other nations. So these peace and friendship treaties were a way for the British to defeat the French. And I just want to say I'm new, I'm new to Nova Scotia. I'm, I'm from Ontario originally. So I moved out here in 2015. So the the learnings about the peace and friendship treaties are new to me coming out here. So in order for the British to defeat the French, they needed the help of the Mi'kmaq. And so these peace and friendship treaties throughout the 1700s were a means to an end, basically, and the, the way in which Canada was founded under the British crown. If I can just segue for one second to say sure. that the first time I heard from Ken Paul, so he now works for the Assembly of First Nations in their fisheries group. And he, at the time, was part of the Atlantic Policy Congress of First Nations Chiefs. And he gave a, a presentation at a workshop that I organized. And he started by getting up there and he said, raise your hand if you're a treaty beneficiary. And there was maybe 40 people in the room and maybe two people raised their hands. And he explained to me what we, I now see everywhere here in Nova Scotia, which is that we are all treaty people. And he said, if you're a Canadian, you are a treaty beneficiary, right? We all have benefited from these treaties because it's the way that Canada was founded. And so we are all treaty people is not a light kind of pleasantry. It is fundamentally a truth about the extent to which our country exists today and who we are as citizens of that country is because we've benefited from those treaties. And I think one of the really important things to recognize here is that Mi'kmaq governance is part of that treaty relationship and treaty understanding, right? So so it wasn't that you can continue to use the land and the resources and benefit from them, but you have to do that 
through you know, what is now a Canadian regulatory system, it was that these treaties recognized the right for Mi'kmaq to continue benefiting and to do so through processes of self-determination and what they think is right for them. And we don't have clear mechanisms for that to happen. I mean, I don't see them as clear mechanisms for that for that yeah. to happen, to have these multiple regulatory and governance regimes operating together. It's, it's this concept of legal pluralism. It's confusing. And it, it makes other people angry when they see different groups that are beholden to different sets of rules, right? Um, but yeah. those different rules exist for a reason and they need to be respected. Yeah. And I mean, of course, right? Like we, we all need to abide by the laws. And when you hear about what's been happening out there, I think this weekend, like you said, the lobster pound was burned down. And I, I read about another person's van being torched two guys mm-hmm. being trapped inside a lobster pound with angry protesters outside cut the power. But it also reminded me that this isn't the first time this year that we've seen these types of clashes. Earlier in January, we had the rail blockades and the Wet'suwet'en protests, and we've had sort of spontaneous marches throughout the rest of the year. Do you have any feeling about why these issues are erupting now? I mean, I think it's important to put it in a global context that so we have the United Nations declarations on the uh, declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples. And that was something that Canada, you know, didn't formally recognize, I think until 2015. So there's a, a large global movement. So this is not just something that Canada is, is kind of dealing with and trying to figure out, but it's something that the world is signing onto and recognizing indigenous peoples have rights. And we have done a pretty crap job of recognizing and respecting and supporting those rights. And so what we see happening in Canada is that these rights are finally, you know, being put out in the open and that's uncomfortable for people and it's challenging the status quo. Businesses feel threatened, individual people feel threatened, landowners, you know, who own land now that maybe they shouldn't or, or, you know, they own land under different circumstances than um, maybe we would like to see in an equitable and just uh, society. So they feel threatened. So... I, and again, I think this fear is understandable, but it's not an excuse for violence and it's not an excuse for racism, but it is, it's understandable that this fear and confusion exists because we have lived a long time without recognizing these rights, without supporting self-determination. And this is a bit of a reckoning and it has to happen. It does seem like, yeah, it, it's, it seems like the latest episode in a long troubled relationship in Canada between Indigenous and, and everyone else. And I was trying to do, think about the sort of economic context of this, but I was someone was telling me that if you look at certain fish species, and I think they were talking about haddock, that haddock that are caught in the Atlantic get caught, then shipped to China, where there's a processing plant that skins them, debones them, breads them, and freezes them, and then ships them back to us, and where they get sold in our grocery stores, and. It struck me as one of those examples of how the economy has changed in the last 50 years, how opportunities have evaporated for why maybe people out there, I don't think this in any way excuses, you know, makes an excuse for violence or the lawlessness we're seeing right now. But it did strike me that, you know, those fisheries, one example of how fisheries have been hit that even jobs like fish processing get moved to China, just seems kind of absurd on the face of it. And I guess I was wondering, how much do you think those sorts of economic migration trends 
are sort of the subtext to the anger that you're seeing out there? Yeah, I, I think they're, it's definitely related. And so a part of the reason that we lack a processing capacity here is, you know, so it's due to globalization and, and the seafood sector is just completely globalized. But it's also because we lost our cod fisheries, right? In 1992, right. we had the cod moratorium. And at that point, there were no ground fish processing licenses granted. And I believe that ban is still in place. So we lost all kind of processing capacity because we stopped catching, you know, valued ground fish. So when we've moved to other ground fish species like haddock, we do not have, we, we still don't have processing capacity and there are no processing licenses granted as far as I understand for ground fish. So it's, it's globalization, absolutely, but it is also kind of a legacy of a failed and collapsed fishery. And so I think there is a huge, you know, that's, a, that's not in the distant past. And so I think the fish harvesting sector is worried about another collapse. Again, I don't think the science would support that for lobster. But I think they recognize that when trouble happens, like the cod collapse, we still don't have a cod fishery back, right? And so this right. is that, that 30 years later, they were kind of told, okay, stop fishing for a few years and then, you know, cod stocks will come back and you'll be able to fish again. And that hasn't happened. So there's distrust, there's fear. And absolutely, the more the fishing sector and the seafood sector is globalized, the, the less any one country kind of matters, <laughs> right? Um, right? And so if we're, if we're not catching cod, well, we're, we're importing a whitefish from somewhere else. And so if we're not processing it, we're importing it from somewhere else. And, and that does definitely threaten jobs. It, you know, I do think it's important to recognize that the fishing sector in Atlantic Canada is the single largest employer. And so that includes obviously the catching, but also the processing and logistics and transport and trade and all of that. So we are talking about an extremely important economic sector with a lot of potential for disruption if if that goes away. Yeah. And it brings up a bigger question, what you just said about our resource policy in general. It seems like whether we're talking about fish or whether we're talking about timber, it feels at times that the, that the policy objective is let's figure out the maximum amount we can sustainably harvest and then let's harvest it. But, and that sounds good in theory, but then when something goes wrong, like if there's a pest that comes along and wipes out huge stands of trees, then all of a sudden the entire industry is wiped out for decades. And it seems like a more reasonable or better way to do it might be to say, let's figure out what the maximum amount we can sustainably harvest is and harvest just below that in case something really bad happens. And so I just wanted to pose that question to you to see if if there's any sort of discussion around sort of policy resource management that may come out of this. Yeah, I mean, we do have an internationally recognized concept called the precautionary approach, right? Which is just that, which is we should be precautionary in our exploitation of natural resources from systems that we can't fully understand, we can't fully measure, you know, and so if we knew exactly how much we should be taking, we should take a little bit less. But I think that that approach is, you know, kind of put at odds with wanting to support employment and food production. So if jobs and food are important, then you want to catch a lot of fish and you want to employ a lot of people to do it. Right. Um, right. Whereas if you want to, yeah, if you want to pull back and be precautionary, you're going to have fewer people fishing and you're going to feed fewer families. Right. So there are absolutely kind of societal choices that have to be made there. And I think what tends to happen is we, we kind of keep pushing towards the food and jobs um, sector and continue to, to push those resources and, and, and catch them, you know, at, at that level that is just on the point of maybe being a little bit too much. Yeah. Well, 
I really appreciate you coming on the show, Megan. I'll, I'll leave it with you if you want to give me any last word about what you think may happen with this dispute. I mean, I guess one thing I would just leave out there is the fact that this all feels like a very new and constantly evolving situation. And it is, but it also, there are a lot of people that have been working on rights-based fisheries for a number of years, right? In terms of supporting self-determination and governance of, of a livelihood fishery, of a food social ceremonial fishery. And so we're not really starting at, at zero. There's a lot of work, a lot of relationship building, a lot of just kind of positive work being done in order to get treaty-based fisheries to a place where these rights can be transparently exercised in a safe way. I, I think that's just really important to recognize and that everything that we're seeing right now in the media is all about kind of tensions and it's very reactive and it's very sad and, and it hurts and it's distressing. But there are a lot of positive things happening in the background. And those are those are things on small scales between small communities. So Bodledek First Nation and the Fishing Association in their region, they launched a moderate livelihood fishery on Treaty Day on October 1st with zero protest because there had been work done there between the Fishing Association and the First Nation to launch that fishery in a safe and supported way. So there are success stories out there. There are good things happening as well. And I don't want us to lose sight of that. And I also just want to say that the actions that we've seen in the news here are not representative of fishermen that I know, of Nova Scotians, of Canadians. I mean, we need to do better. We can do better. And just not to lose sight of those bigger pictures because the, you know, the current news is really so terrible right now. But there are a lot of good things happening. Well, thank you for providing us with that, with that background. This was really, really helpful. And I think it's been great to talk with you. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks so much for the opportunity to, to try to talk about these issues and share some of the, the context in the background. It's much appreciated. That was Megan Bailey, Associate Professor at Dalhousie University and Canada Research Chair in Integrated Ocean and Coastal Governance. Thank you for listening to Down to Business and thank you to Bryce Hall for music and production. Yadula Hussein for editing, and Pamela Heaven and Victoria Wells for web support. If you feel inclined, please share this episode with a friend and rate us on your podcast app. I'm Gabe Friedman, and until next week, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com.